Once there was a gangster who ran this ship in town. Sent you up the wish call, set up to drown. They say he killed a hundred, but only two were found. The rest walked the waterfront and shadows on the ground. Out across the water, sirens sing. Good night, Eileen. Oh, I'll see you in my dreams. Down a found morning, we'll be drawn beneath. Come back is the ghost to home streets back Every crime that anyone could think of that happened between 1902 and 1910 was placed at the feet of Billy Gould, who was probably one of the best known labor activists in the Northwest in the early 20th century, which is the very reason why he had to be removed. This week, labor history takes a deep dive into true crime territory. Billy Gould was called the Ghoul of Gray's Harbor in the early 20th century when he was accused of being the murderer who dumped several bodies into the canals around Aberdeen in Washington State. Was he one of America's first serial killers, or was he just another in a long line of labor activists framed by the bosses? Find out when Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast host Shannon Ann Harold talk with Aaron Goings, author of The Port of Missing Men. On Labor History in 2, the year was 1918. That was the day machinist John Connolly was fired from General Electric's sprawling river works in West Lynn, Massachusetts. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. Sirens sing Good night, Irene Oh, I'll see you in my day Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 29 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with over 150 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. And before we get started, we always like to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, its affiliate unions, our guest unions, or employers, not even their historian. Nobody but themselves. Their historian? Who, who has an historian? I mean, Labor does. I guess that's true. Labor does have historians, don't they? Um, Well, you know, now that we've got that over with, Shannon, I got a question for you. You like the true crime shows? (laughs) 
absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people in our day and age really got addicted to true crime shows, especially during the pandemic when we're trying to figure out what to watch. I've always been into true crime. I don't know why, but it fascinates me. And I know it kind of scares my husband a little bit because I tend to watch Snapped a lot. And that has to do with, you know, a lot of women going a little snappy crazy. And so he's always like, you know, worried at night, keeping one eye open. Well, yes. that's that's how you keep him in line. So actually, I think it's probably <laughs> good strategy. But you may not know it. We had a little true crime drama right here in Southwest Washington in the early 1900s. See, the bodies of sailors started showing up in the canals around Aberdeen, Washington. And this guy, Billy Goal, was arrested for the crime. Some of called him the ghoul of Grays Harbor, one of America's first serial killers. Ooh, that's that's kind of creepy. But what does that have to do with us, Harold? Sure, it happened in Southwest Washington, but we're a labor show focused on working people issues. See, the point is Billy Gold's story, according to Dr. Aaron Going's book, The Port of Missing Men, is a labor history story. But don't take my word for it. We've got Aaron right here with us on the show. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my book, Port of Missing Men, came out from the University of Washington Press pretty recently. And this fall, in only a few short months, it's going to come out as a paperback. They have it at uh, lots of bookstores, lots of museums, and from unionized sellers like Powell's down in Portland. Nice shout out to Powell's. You beat me to it, Brother Aaron. <laughs> and you know, the union there, ILWU Local 5, actually has a link that you can go through that will contribute to their fund for their union. So we're going to go ahead and put that into the show notes. But Aaron, who do people think Billy Gold was? Right. So Billy Gold was a German immigrant who was born in the late 19th century. Unfortunately, um, as he became more identified with murder and then serial killing after his arrest in 1910, people began to call him the ghoul of Gray's Harbor and exclusively refer to him as Billy Ghoul. I often slip up with that. So many people see him as something of a caricature in earlier day. Ted Bundy, something like that, and suggest that he was responsible for dozens or even hundreds of murders. Some have suggested that he is one of the world's worst serial killers. Um, and that's been the story going on for over a century. So this is the Billy Gold that people think they know. But you did a lot of research for this book, and there's a Billy Gold that people may not know. Right? Right. Uh, you know, everybody has different sides to their life, but very few are as misunderstood, as condescended, uh, as mocked as Billy was. Because during his life, just like the listeners of this podcast, Billy was a working class person. He was a migratory laborer, an immigrant who, like millions of other migrant workers, immigrant laborers, helped to build the industrial United States. He was a sailor and a union activist. I started doing research into Billy because it's difficult to grow up in Grays Harbor, as I did, without knowing something 
about what I came to call the myth of Billy Gould. And the more I dug, the more I found out, the more that it appeared that this Gould of Grays Harbor uh, stories allowed the early 20th century employers who ran politics, ran the media, ran everything, it allowed them to take an extremely violent place, a place where they were largely to blame for so much of the violence because of the working conditions and the living conditions. Um, they took the blame for all that violence, all that death, and put it on one person. They put it on Billy. They put it on him in newspapers. And once that story started, Every crime that anyone could think of that happened between 1902 and 1910 was placed at the feet of Billy Gould, who was probably one of the best known labor activists in the Northwest in the early 20th century, which is the very reason why he had to be removed. So I just wanted to get into some some gory details here, being a true crime person. So how many people did he kill? How did he do it? What was he accused of? Did he do it? Was he just accused because he was this high-ranking union leader and they needed to take him out because he was causing too much good trouble? I mean, what are the deets? Don't, I know we don't want to ruin the story, but give us a little, little yummies. Oh, and I like that you uh, brought up good trouble because that is exactly what Billy did. And like so many of the people who caused good trouble. He ran afoul of the law. He ran afoul of those who have so much power in society. So the word accused, I suppose, is uh, a little bit difficult here. He was arrested and charged with two murders. He was uh, convicted of one murder. But from the moment he got arrested in early February 1910 until May 1910, when he was sent off to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, uh, almost every day during the three or four months, several newspapers ran articles saying that he was responsible for dozens or hundreds of murders that every working class person, and it was almost exclusively working class people who died violently in Grays Harbor, uh, that he was to blame for all of them. Right. I mentioned early on, there was this epidemic of bodies floating in the canals out there. Right. So from about 1904 until 1908, there were dozens of working class people found floating there. Most of them um, were, unsurprisingly, in this center of the lumber economy. In fact, Grays Harbor was the largest lumber shipping port in the world at this time. Um, most of them were victims of what we might call euphemistically industrial accidents. They died on the job performing horrifically dangerous work to make profits for the employers, to make profits for their bosses. Um, worked long hours in horribly dangerous conditions. Many others fell drunkenly into the water because Aberdeen and Hoquim, just like any well-known working class city in the American West, had dozens of saloons all along the waterfront, a waterfront that had no streetlights, had no guardrails. These saloons, as well as the boarding houses, where they would stay, as well as the ships 
where they would stay because they couldn't afford housing when they were loading and unloading ships. Um, these are all, of course, along the water. And importantly, only a very few, only a small handful of these floaters, they were called the floater fleet. Uh, there were so many of them. Only a small number of them were declared to be likely murders by the coroners. So uh when Billy Gold got arrested, he was blamed for all these bodies, right? right? Why? What had he done to put him in the crosshairs of the elites in this area? That's sort of at the center of this. Um, he had done a lot. He was, as I think I mentioned, the most prominent labor leader in the area. He was the head of the Sailors Union of the Pacific, which still exists. And those sailors are the group responsible for taking the cut lumber to market. So every ship that left, bringing hundreds of millions of board feet of lumber from Aberdeen and Hoquim, they were sailed by union sailors. And uh, Billy was the elected union leader for the sailors union for about eight years. So every ship that went out, he had to say who could and could not work on those ships. They had to be union workers and all hiring went through his hall. Well, on several occasions, he refused to provide union sailors to certain captains who had, in some cases, murdered sailors, uh, had beaten, whipped sailors, imprisoned sailors aboard ship. So if a captain got a notorious reputation, Billy put him on sort of a reverse blacklist. And this caused all kinds of problems. By 1908, 1909, near the end of Gould's time in Grays Harbor, several shipping companies were threatening to move their business to the Puget Sound and only accept lumber from there. Uh, ah, so there was big money at stake, wasn't there? It's yeah. always about money and it's always the spouse. Just saying. Uh, well, yeah. So, uh, of course, the geography and economics of Southwest Washington have changed quite a bit. And Aberdeen and Hoquiam are fairly small towns at this point. And Vancouver is the big city in Southwest Washington. But a hundred years ago, and this is clear if you drive around Aberdeen and Hoquiam, there are mansions all over the hills. Those mansions were homes of some of the world's wealthiest lumber mill owners, lumber manufacturers, boss loggers. And that money, of course, came from something. It came from the profits made from the logging camps and from the shingle mills and the sawmills. In 1906, that's the key year in Billy's union life, the entire Pacific coast of the United States, uh, the sailors and many longshoremen went on strike shortly after the San Francisco earthquake and fire because San Francisco had burned down and they needed lumber to rebuild the city. Well, employers, unsurprisingly, refused to grant wage increases to the sailors. So they went on strike. And in Gray's Harbor, like any port, there's this choke point right at the point of transportation where the goods get put on the ships. And for several weeks, Billy Gull and the union he led shut down that port and the profit faucet just went dry. 
And not only did the workers shut it down, but as employers, as bosses, as police tried to break the strike, Billy met strike breakers, he met police, and he met employers with guns and with bats. So they fought back against employers, fought against strike breakers, and just refused to allow strike breakers and scabs to break the strike. And they won. The sailors won the strike, uh, earned their wage increase in a really powerful expression of labor solidarity on the Pacific coast. So it sounds like Billy was definitely a target of these powerful interests. And when the possibility came up to pin these murders on him. They framed him. Yes. And this, of course, is not terribly uncommon. There have been labor activists throughout American history and other activists, civil rights activists, indigenous rights activists, women activists have routinely been arrested for false charges and sentenced to jail and prison and even executed in the case of uh, Joe Hill and Sacco and Benzetti. So why is it important for working people today to know this story? Obviously, you're working to set the record straight about someone who's been painted as a murderer by history. But why is it important for working people to understand this history? I think that it's important for several reasons. Uh, On the one hand, Billy was only sentenced to prison and attacked in the press because of these coordinated activities by employers. In 1908 and 1909, a group of large lumber manufacturers and bankers in Aberdeen came together and formed a citizens committee. These same people would later attack the Wobblies, perhaps most of you know about them, they would form a vigilante committee. Well, they got rid of Billy in different ways. They raised about $10,000 and they hired labor spies, um, not from the notorious Pinkerton agency. They hired them from a competitor agency, the field detective agency, quite possibly the most notorious company in the American West at that time. Hey, Pinkertons, Didn't Amazon hire Pinkertons for security out in New York? Ah, yes. In fact, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, founded in the 19th century, is as notorious in American history as probably almost any group. And what they did and what they continued to do is offer services to companies to break unions. That's why they exist. 120 years ago, What they would do is they would go undercover, pose as workers or members of certain groups, and they would often incite those groups to violence, or they would just keep track of everything the group was doing and tell employers and tell the police what was going on. Employers have a long history of trying to eliminate union activists from their ranks. Um, One way they did that a hundred years ago, was to get a labor spy from the Pinkerton or Thiel agency to infiltrate that organization, that union, and then report to the employer who would then ban everyone from employment, effectively starving any union member. And unfortunately, the Pinkertons persist to this day and hired today by one of the most infamous anti-union companies in the world, Amazon. 
but I'm sure that uh, there's no spying going on now, right? That's just something way back in ancient history. Oh, no spying. And oh my gosh, they don't spend millions and millions of dollars to avoid a union when they could have just used a fraction of that money and given it to their damn employees. Don't get me started, Pinkertons. If there's one thing that I think labor history can teach us, one of the things, the big things, and that I think helps us understand our own times today is that employers will do anything or almost anything to maintain unquestioned control over the workplace. It's their property and they will do anything to make sure that workers who they often see as children, who they often see as just dumb, have no power. And they will use anything. With Billy Goal, they used legal services, they used newspapers, they used the law. Today, they'll use these anti-union consultants who make millions and millions of dollars. And just as you said, that money could go to providing living wages or insurance. And this employer activism against workers is as responsible as anything, in my opinion, why the United States lags behind other wealthy countries in so many ways, tragically. So what happened to Billy Gold? Well, um, he was sentenced in 1910 to life in prison. He was separated at that point from his wife, who he'd been married to for several years, shipped off to Walla Walla, and he spent the rest of his life until 1927 behind bars. He died in 1927 in a prison hospital. He died alone about 17 years after being in prison. Aaron, where can people find out more about what you've uncovered about Billy Gold? How can they get this book? It's available from the University of Washington Press. It's available at the various online booksellers. I would recommend certainly going with Powell's or potentially a co-op bookstore like Orca Books and Olympia. They all have copies. Um, you can also get them at a number of museums in Southwest Washington. And in a few short months, the paperback will be coming out. This was a hardcover. It's $30. So I suspect the paperback will be at least somewhat more affordable. And while you're at it, I, uh, in 2019, wrote a book with Oregon State University Press called The Red Coast, Radicalism and Anti-Radicalism in Southwest Washington, which isn't so much a biography of one person, but instead something of a popular history of workers' movements and efforts by employers to stifle those movements. And where is that available? Similar kinds of places. Uh, Oregon State University Press, online booksellers. I've seen it at several bookstores, including Powell's the last time I was there. And then you can always find my website at my workplace just by searching for my name. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron Goings, author of The Port of Missing Men and Red Coast. Thank you. It's a real honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Aaron, so much for providing us some history of our little Southwest corner. Now stick with us, working people. We'll be right back. Hi, folks. This is Patrick Dixon from Labor History Today, brought to you by the DC Metro Labor Council and the Cowman of its Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. 
I'd like to take a moment to tell you about an exciting new resource. Labour History Today is now a member of the Labour Radio Network, a coalition of Labour radio shows and podcasts from across the United States and Canada. All you need to do is go to labourradionetwork.org and you can listen to local programming from coast to coast, from Oregon to Texas to Missouri to Ontario to Michigan to Vermont to New Jersey. You can find an abundance of exciting original recordings. Whether you're looking for discussions of union news here at home or in the world, you'd like to hear workers podcasting about their experiences on the job, you're interested in labour history, or you'd like to learn more about new books on workers and workers' movements, it's all there. So that's labourradionetwork.org. You can follow us on Instagram at labourradionet and look out for the hashtag labourradiopod on Twitter. You've got no excuse for ever being bored again. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day machinist John Connolly was fired from General Electric's Sprawling River Works in West Lynn, Massachusetts. Firings of several more labor activists prompted 14,000 workers, 40% of them women, to walk off the job and flood the ranks of the IAM and the IBEW. The newly established War Labor Board emboldened GE workers. They looked to the board for help in beating back yellow dog contracts and to organize bona fide unions. A metal trades council had finally been established at the GE plant in Schenectady, New York. Workers hoped to do the same at Lynn. After Connolly's discharge, GE managers fired another 14 activists three days later. As Joseph McCartan describes in his book, Labor's Great War, thousands of outraged workers met the evening of the firings and determined there was nothing left to do but strike. The walkout began the following Monday. David Montgomery describes the scene in the fall of the House of Labor, writing, quote, Early in the afternoon, union sound trucks outside the building blared fighting songs and called to down tools. Within an hour, the GE Riverworks were empty. The strike lasted three weeks. In that time, strikers defeated attempts at arbitration, demanding the board rule on their behalf as it had done for GE workers in Schenectady. In October, the board adjusted wages, ordered reinstatement of all but two of the fired workers, and established minimum pay for women. It also ordered the election of shop committees. Lynn Riverworks was now 95% organized. Victory was short-lived, however. In the post-war period, Unions at GE and elsewhere were summarily defeated in vigorous open shop drives across the country. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Sure hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please take a moment to share Labor History Today with someone you think would also enjoy it. That's how we keep this history alive and how we build audience for the show. Thanks so much. Thanks as always to Labor History and Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Music today was Hellbound Glory, Streets of Aberdeen, The Ballad of Billy Ghoul, sung by Leon Virgil Bowers. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, 
and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.